0: Hi, I'm Christina Nunez, co founder and general partner at True Beauty Ventures.
1: Hi, I'm Rich Gersten, co founder of True Beauty Ventures.
0: What we love about beauty, it is simply a great business to be in when built and executed correctly. And that's, of course, where we come in.
2: From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Hi, and welcome to Beauty is Your Business. I'm Denise Dente, and I am here with my co-host and business partner, Jessica Quick. Hi, Jessica.
3: Hey, Denise.
2: And we're really excited to have our two guests today. We have with us Rich Gersten and Christina Nunez. Hi, how are you guys doing? Great, thank you. We are really happy to have you on the show. Jessica and I have been talking about this for a couple of weeks, so we're thrilled to have you. And I think what's really fun about this is Rich was on the show back in January of 2021, so it's been just over a year ago, and so much has happened during that time, both in the marketplace as well as within your business. And then obviously today we've got Christina on the show, your business partner. So it's going to be fun to look at some new pieces of information, talk about where you're at currently, and dig into some of these new pieces that are going to be fun to go to kind of the next version of. So definitely encourage our audience to go back and listen to that original episode. And then we're looking forward to digging into new material. So let's really start with where is True Beauty Ventures at today and how have things evolved since we last spoke in January?
1: I'll kick it off. I guess it was January 2021. We were probably six months into our gig with a a bit of a dream and a vision of what True Beauty Ventures could be. And as we fast forward a year, I'm just so proud to say that we've raised our fund. We've completed nine investments. were in active discussions on a 10th investment and probably looking to raise another fund in the next 90 days or so. So a lot has happened in the past year.
0: What a difference a year makes, that is for sure. When Rich and I first talked about creating this opportunity, It really was a dream, and it was a vision that we had and a strategy, and it's been so rewarding to actually see that come to life and to see all of the people we've been able to touch in the industry, not only within True Beauty Ventures as far as our team, we've added two people, so that's exciting, but also the portfolio of brands that we've been able to partner with, the founders that we have developed amazing relationships with and just others in the industry that have become part of this incredible ecosystem that we've been able to build over this period of time. And it's just incredible to see.
2: Well, you really are those subject matter experts in this area of beauty. So not surprising that you're growing your portfolio. And I think that's a really good place to start is, you know, with True Beauty, how do you find the potential partners that you're looking at investing in?
0: You know, it's interesting because in the same way that we know there are long lead times in beauty product development, there's also long lead times in beauty investing. And we have learned that over the last couple of years since we launched, where it's incredibly important for us to have a process that allows us to identify and develop relationships with the brands and the founders way before we invest in them so i would say that the process for us is really get them on the radar the brands that is develop relationships with the founders and then make an investment become a reality and that can sometimes happen over six to 12 months even and so when we think about the brands that are on our radar today we probably have hundreds that we're tracking, but there are probably about 10 or 20 brands that are on an active watch list that we have and they catch our eye. And it could be for something unique they're doing. It could be because of an innovative product that they launched or simply because they have an incredible founder behind them and a unique brand positioning that is differentiated. And when you spend so much time focused on one industry, and you see something that stands out, it probably means that there's something special about the brand. And so we keep a very active watch list, and we reach out to brands because they make our watch list. And once we reach out to them, we focus on building a relationship. And we use our network to get to certain founders if we perhaps don't know them. And we introduce ourselves, and we learn about them, and we tell them about what we're doing. And become almost advisors to them, even before a partnership forms. And we refer to it as partner before the money. And that means partnering with them and showing how we can add value. But that also means seeing how they interact with us. You know, the questions that they ask us or when they ping us because they want our advice on a particular issue. That relationship building happens over a period of time and we find it incredibly beneficial. And then I think the last piece is getting in position when it's time for that founder to raise. You don't meet them at the perfect time when they're looking to raise around. So sometimes you need to wait for the founders to be ready. And when they're ready, our hope is that we're the partner of choice for them.
1: And I think getting them on the radar where it started, where Christina had begun the conversation, I think you need to take a step back and understand the benefits of sector specialization and the ecosystem that's been created, in my case, over 20 years. So what's in that ecosystem? It's a network of beauty editors. It's a network of merchants, at various retailers, brick and mortar and e-commerce. It's a network of executives and founders, it's bankers, you name it, the the network and the number of people that mention or refer brands to us allows us to connect the dots, right? When certain brands keep getting mentioned over and over again by a relevant group of stakeholders, that perks our ears up. With that said, we also, our team walks into Sephora and Alta all the time and looks at what's on the aisles and in the gondolas and asks the door teams what's working and what's not, right? We're well-read with all the beauty content that's published every day about a new brand being launched. I think Christina's point's the right one. Like we've looked at over 700 brands in the last year and a half. It's an astoundingly large number, right? How do you get to invest in nine out of 700? What's your process? like, and this notion of sea of sameness exists in the beauty industry. There's a lot of brands that look and feel and sound the same. And again, one of the benefits of the sector specialization is if it's all you're doing, you're listening to hundreds and hundreds of brands all in the same space pitch you, or at least position themselves for a pitch. And when they don't sound the same, when every two or three out of a hundred sound different that's when they show up on our radar screen.
3: So that's very interesting, and I'd like to dive in a little bit about that because obviously you're a founder, a brand, you launch a great product. Maybe it doesn't get as much buzz. Your community isn't building as quickly as you want, but you're getting up every day and hustling behind it. You had mentioned earlier the importance of the founder and being different. So within there, is there something that you guys have Started to see after 700 evaluations and two years of really doing this? Are you seeing a specific man, this type of founder or this type of ethos really attracts us? Have you started to get close to that?
1: It is an interesting dynamic. So, 20 years ago, when I was five years old and started investing in the beauty (laughs) space, the average founder looked like a makeup artist, a dermatologist, a hairstylist, or a plastic surgeon. And they were creating product based on their profession and what they saw as a whole in the market where they could create a better mousetrap or product to service their consumer need. That was the founder landscape 20 years ago. When you fast forward and you look at even the founders in our current portfolio, what you see is varying degrees of background. Many out of like classically trained beauty people in large beauty companies who've left on their own. You have, in the case of like Nancy Twine at Briogeo, a Goldman Sachs background. I mean, you have different backgrounds of different founders. And so that business savviness that may not have existed 20 years ago is really important to us, right? Because we're investing in the founder typically as the CEO of a small brand, not looking to necessarily bring in a new leader at the early stages of a brand's infancy. And so we need to rely on that founder to have real good business acumen and business training to help scale a business to a certain level. And that's a refreshing change, quite honestly, for us versus what I used to look at 20 years ago, because the risks of early stage investing 20 years ago would have been much higher, in my view, because of that different background that existed back then.
2: So, taking that into account, we see very, very similar things. In fact, several of the people that we've had on this show have had backgrounds in finance or operations which is been a big shift, and they come with a different set of skill, a different way of looking at the business. And so it sounds like what you do is look at a wide variety of founders, and that's one of the best starting points, and then understand what their personal strengths are, and then figure out how you're going to work with the brand from there.
1: But it's so more than the background. And Christina should chime in because the, the North Star, the passion, The intangible that one necessarily can't describe or lay out, and what do you look for in a founder? It just hits you sometimes in your interactions with the person. We're like, wow, that person's amazing. And you just don't know what it is sometimes.
0: And we try really hard to understand what a founder's superpowers are, and if they're positioned in the right way to capitalize on those superpowers, if they've surrounded themselves with a team to be able to augment the areas where maybe they're not as strong and shouldn't be spending their time and focus on. And whether or not that founder, quite honestly, has a combination of two things. They have the ambition and the drive to create really audacious goals, but they also have the wisdom and the realism to understand What could potentially disrupt my path to achieving those goals and constantly planning for those? So it's a combination of realism with this optimism of I could do anything in the world, but also then what could potentially be a downfall or a pitfall for me? And that's something that's a cognitive dissonance that is super important for a founder to have. But I think part of what Rich is getting at with the new cohort of founders is it does make our jobs easier in that they have the business fundamentals and the savviness. I also think because we are so sector specialized, if they don't come from beauty necessarily, that's not the end of the world because they look to a partner like us to be able to lean on and we have this in a couple of our brands they'll look to us for that beauty expertise that depth and knowledge and network to be able to augment maybe their incredibly strong digital marketing skills for example and maybe they don't have the beauty industry experience but they have other incredible intangibles so we find that partnership to work really well for us as well and then to the point around going back to the evaluation there's not a science to this really it's really an art And there's a gut feeling when it comes to a conversation you have with a founder and their team and your gut reaction on how this brand could be successful. What we try to do is we take that gut and we try to validate that with then the diligence and the work that we'll do to ensure that the investment criteria metrics are met for us. So it really is that perfect combination of art and science when we actually decide to pull the trigger on an investment.
1: I think the interesting thing that we found over the past year as well is we're founders ourselves of a new startup. Right, so we've created our own business. At the same time, these other founders we're meeting with have created their own businesses. We're trying to build a brand; they're trying to build a brand. And so, I think in part that, and in part because I think Christina's background as the GM of a relatively smaller skincare brand, I think also gives us an empathy gene with founders. We can relate perhaps a little bit more to what they're going through than the average investor. And we're feeling their pain. Like when we're fundraising, we want to be making investing. When they're fundraising, they want to be operating their business. And so they. There's a lot of parallels over the past year where we shared some of the same seat with some of the founders that we've spoken to. And I think that's been a unique learning for us.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting dynamic is the fact that you're building your business at the same time as many of your investments are and something very human about that because you are going to be more empathetic to they're not perfect. They've already made mistakes, will continue to make mistakes. You'll help guide and advise, but you're not looking for this very cut and dry situation, you're looking for the human, you're looking for the person that really is going to emote the brand and build it, get your investment back, obviously. So I think it's interesting is you find that person or you start to build the relationship. How do you work with them as the investment team as the advisor, potentially team? Is there a day to day interaction? Is it different between every single founder? What is the ideal situation for you guys?
1: The answer, of course, is yes to all. And it depends on everything, because that generally is the case. And I'll give a high level. And then I think Christina can give some more concrete examples. But Christina and I are private equity trained investment professionals, right? One of the things about a private equity trained investment professional is you have a more concentrated portfolio of investments, and you generally want to spend more time with your portfolio companies or partner companies, as we like to call them as well, right? We have tried to implement that albeit in a venture or emerging growth fund investing stage. And so our portfolio is going to be much more concentrated than a typical venture portfolio will, in part because we're sector specialized and therefore we don't think we're taking as much risk as a generalist would, therefore needing to spread the risk around more and more investments. So we have a more concentrated portfolio. But the primary reason for having that concentrated portfolio is because we think the founders who want to partner with us largely want us for both our capital, but more importantly, our time and knowledge and experience. And if we have 60 companies, then guess what? We fail on every metric of delivering against that promise. So we have to have a more concentrated portfolio so that we can leverage our time across them. To the other point, not always equally, right? Some want it more, some want it less. And we also try to understand that in the process that Christina started the dialogue with, which is where we're partnering to learn before we invest. And we get a good sense of how founders want to interact with us during those times as well.
0: Yeah. And I think to the point around having a smaller, more concentrated portfolio than traditional VC firms, what that means is that we have to be right way more than we're wrong. And we have to be involved and help our brands grow because most of them will have to be successful in order for us to be successful. And that means that, again, depending on the founder, we do spend as much time as they want or as little time as they want. What do I mean by that? Some of our founders like to touch base every single day. They'll send us messages over Slack, over email over text, they'll call and they enjoy that relationship. They enjoy asking us questions about small things, about big things like distribution decisions. And that's part of the relationship we have with them. And other founders would rather report to us monthly or have bigger strategic conversations once a quarter as an example. We will mold and react to what best suits the relationship and what makes it the most effective. The one thing, though, that we really, really emphasize is just direct communication and having an open dialogue where, for the most part, it's a very safe space where they could share the good, the bad, and the ugly. And actually, we ask for the bad and the ugly first. We always say that share the bad news first because the only problem that we can't help you solve is the one that we don't know about. And so as long as that communication is very direct and honest, whether that happens daily, or it happens on a monthly basis, we care about the quality of the conversation. And in fact, when founders tend to go really quiet, it makes us worried, because it probably means they're battling something and dealing with something. And we want to be there to support in those times of need.
2: I think we find that in just about everything, right? When vendors go quiet on us, when employees go quiet, quiet is usually not good. So can definitely feel that that is an important element of it. At the end of the day, though, you are expecting and do have expectations and matrix metrics and things like that to be able to measure against. So take us through some of that. What are your performance expectations? How do you measure? How do you track? And we know that everything is not just a hockey stick things ebb and tide and it depends on the brand and the timing and what's happening in the marketplace. But take us through some of your thoughts with regards to that.
0: So we have a culture of measuring what matters and mainly because we believe you can't manage what you can't measure. And so when it comes to financial performance, as an example, we spend time with our founders looking at their financial metrics every month looking at how they perform to a budget or to a reforecast if they've reforecasted So that's kind of the baseline is let's make sure that, you know, you're hitting top line, gross margin in particular, and then whatever level of profitability the brand has planned. So we spend time monthly digging into the financials with them and giving them our perspective and analysis on what they could mean for the rest of the year, how they should think about budgeting in general. So we spend some time doing that. There's also metrics that we think are really important for brands to measure, not for our benefit so that we could track them, but rather for them to manage their business. And that's, I'm going to refer to some of the digital dashboard metrics that are best practices for founders to track, especially if they have a significant portion of their business or a good chunk of their business in digital. And so that can range anything from your traffic and AOV, your conversion metrics, looking at your source of traffic, how much is coming from paid versus organic channels, looking at your repeat purchase rate. Customers that come and purchase once and then come back and purchase a second time, what products are they purchasing the second time? What does the consumer product journey tell you? How does that inform your decision making? All of these are really important metrics that we like to see, of course, but more importantly, the founders and the management teams should be tracking on a monthly basis. Some do it on a weekly basis, so that they can keep tabs of what's going on and identify and let the data tell them if there's anything that they should double click on.
1: So think about the direct to consumer, the digital metrics that Christina just mentioned. If I didn't know anything, and a brand came to me and said 100% of their traffic was a result from paid. Marketing and the percentage of consumers who purchase more than once over a 12 month period is less than 5%, versus 75% of a brand's traffic comes from organic and direct, and 35% of its consumers are purchasing more than one time over a 12 month period. The data would suggest one of those brands is much healthier than the other, right? The latter being much more healthy than the former. So the, the health of a brand and the underlying drivers of what might cause a brand to be successful can be revealed very quickly through the digital metrics as one example. So even when brands don't have huge direct-to-consumer businesses, those metrics still inform us on brand health, right? And you want a brand that's healthy. And by the way, if you were in the former camp and we're relying 100% of your revenues on paid traffic, and then IOS 14 changes hit in April and May of 2021. What you thought might have even been a good business became a bad one overnight. Whereas, like, we have one brand in our portfolio that was largely always driven by organic and direct traffic and revenues. And it didn't miss a beat in the course of 2021 because the changes weren't impacting the way it was marketing because it wasn't marketing that way to begin with.
0: That's on the digital side. I think if a brand is also selling in wholesale, we also encourage them to take a look at and share with us their sell-through reporting by customer, by SKU. So they can really compare how much they're selling in versus how much they're selling through and what that can also signal in terms of the health of the business in those retail partners. So really important to look at a combination of your P&L, balance sheet cash flow, plus your digital metrics, plus any retail sell-through reporting, that's nice to have on a monthly basis.
1: I think investors that aren't well-versed in consumer and in beauty in particular, will look at an income statement a founder gives you and will say, well, your revenues are X and they grew 50% last year, that's great. Well, if you then looked at the retail sales and the retail sales were flat or down, all it meant was they opened up a lot of new distribution or shipped a lot of inventory into the system and it hasn't sold through yet. And guess what? While retailers don't operate under consigned terms, they do at the end of the day when it's not selling through, right? And so to look at wholesale shipments or net revenues without looking at some corresponding retail sell-through data is a meaningless analysis, one or the other in the vacuum. And the only metric that really matters most to us is the retail sell through, because if that's the measure of demand and consumption at the consumer level, and if it is selling through and the retailer hasn't overordered, you will get net revenues because you will be refilling those sold through sales. And so I think you can never lose sight of the track that the measure of consumer demand is the sell through, not the sell in.
3: Rich, I think you might actually be Denise's best friend because <laughs> literally I tell her when she goes on her tombstone, I am putting cells through. That's all she ever talks about. It's so funny. We have this conversation with our own clients, but just in our own business as well. The health of the business is on the sell through. Obviously, I love that, Christina, you laid out the whole package. And I think that was super valuable about how to think about your business with those points each month. But absolutely, some of those are historical pieces, right? Your finances and so forth can be backwards looking. Sales out and sell through is very forward looking. And so Denise and I are dying on the side of the mic because we literally are like, it's us.
1: It should eventually get in sync with each other. Exactly. Unless you continue to open up new distribution, but they should eventually reflect the same.
2: It also helps in so many other areas, right? It helps in forecasting. It helps in new product development. It helps in so many things that if you track sells in and sales out and the rate in which it does it, there are so many good pieces of information there that it's
0: wonderful. So
2: I think that that right there is such a huge tip. And it's so hard as
0: a founder of a small business to take a step back sometimes and create the space for you to do that analysis. So oftentimes we can provide that analysis, that perspective, and we can just guide the founder to look at certain things, if we're able to review the information and get the data, which is again, just why it's so important for all parties involved to have this best practice.
1: But sometimes in diligence, we'll ask a founder for the retail sales and they'll tell us that they don't get it or they don't have it. And that to us is frightening because either they are lying to us, which is the worst thing in the world. Or two, you're not asking for something that's so basically fundamental to how you operate your business that, trust me, they give it to you if you ask for it, right? So you need to be asking for it if you're not, because the fact that you think it's not available is a huge red flag.
2: Amen.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Completely, completely agree. We do. And we also are big proponents of, it's great that you have the data, and then what do you do with it? Because we find also, especially as now we have so much information at our fingertips, what we loved about the direct-to-consumer channels, the marketplaces channels, you get more data, but a lot of times people don't even know what to do. So the fact that they have someone like True Beauty that can step in and really help, okay, you have the data, and then what is it telling us? What are we going to learn from this? What are we going to do? And how is it going to affect our strategies, our plans, and how we're moving forward to grow and scale this business?
1: And because we've seen so many brands have been involved with so many brands over the course of our careers, we've seen so much that there's so much for us to then share and give back into how someone might be looking at it differently to have another takeaway. And beauty's in the eye of the beholder. Everyone might look at a different set of data differently, but training someone what they might be missing in terms of how they look at it is important.
3: Absolutely. And I would love, I know we spent a lot of time kind of really understanding the way that you look at this business. But you have recently started, since we last spoke, a mentorship program, Bridges. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I know you're kind of freshly underway with your first three brands, but would love to understand the genesis of that and then what you're finding as really diving into this mentorship program.
1: I'll just say that we decided to run a mentorship program for three founders. We had about a three-week application process that was fairly time-intensive in terms of completing it, and we had just under 110 applicants for three positions, which really made our jobs difficult and made it terrible for us to have to say no to plenty of high-quality founders that we would have loved to have included. The demand for it was there. I'll let Christina talk a little bit about the genesis behind it.
0: The idea for it really comes from this value that we have as a fund to be servant investors. And that means giving back to the beauty industry overall, contributing to it in positive ways and benefiting so many small brands that unfortunately we're not able to invest in directly for a multitude of reasons. It might not be the right time. They may be too small, et cetera. But if we could create a platform to be able to formally give back to three brands twice a year, spending five months or so with them, learning their challenges, giving them a business diagnostic, giving them our perspective on how to prioritize some of these challenges with an action plan, and then connecting them into our network of beauty advisors, vendors, et cetera. We think we can actually help them not only raise money down the road, but also be more successful in their business overall. And for us, that's incredibly rewarding. And it really fits with our mission of being the partner of choice for brands in this sector in beauty and wellness. So we just started in January. We're about halfway through the program with our first three brands. And we'll start the process again for applications later in the summer for the back half of the year. And we're just so proud of our team, our mentees, Beauty Independent, who is our partner in this as well. It's really been a group effort, and we're very excited for the next phase of this.
1: If you're not a beauty sector specialized fund, you wouldn't create a beauty-focused mentorship program, definitionally, right? So part of The benefits of our sector specialization is the ability to do certain things and give back in certain ways or create partnerships or collaborations with other people in the beauty industry and in the ecosystem that we live in every day. And so ultimately, we're trying to continue to reinforce our point of difference as an investor with the sector specialization and experiences we have. And if you think about the three brands in the program experience, well, it really kicks off with them as if they're trying to raise money from True Beauty Ventures and we give them our diligence list. And we say, this is what we would expect you to give to us. And then what comes back generally wouldn't pass the muster for us, in part because they're just younger and less ready for it, but that creates the roadmap. Okay, you need to get better here. You need to be able to present the numbers this way. You need to think about this issue differently than you're showing it. And so kind of putting them through this little mini process as if they were seeking investment from us really does create a nice action plan and roadmap for them to be able to, when they're ready, pass the test.
2: And as part of that roadmap, when you're investing in brands, getting them kicked off and getting them started, then they go through that most likely aggressive growth phase. And then at some point you choose to exit. What does that look like for you? When do you exit? How do you exit? What does that look like?
1: In my experience as a traditional private equity investor, you exit your beauty investments not because you think it's time to exit them, but because the market is suggesting you exit them. And what does that mean? That means in the case of DivaCurl, that was a Tangram investment in the past. And in a like three-month time period, independent of each other, three logical corporate buyers all approached us with interest in acquiring the business. The business wasn't for sale, but the fact that it had registered and had been on the radar screen of some logical buyers for us informed that maybe we've done enough now that it is time to exit and i think because we're getting in earlier it'll be different paths along the way the ultimate exit like i just described i think will always be informed by the market like you've done something and it's on the radar screen the thing about our strategy it requires different capital raises and different needs over time and sure there might be an intermediate step along the way where we have a chance to maybe exit before the ultimate exit or not but that's kind of the interesting part of the strategy is we have the option perhaps to choose exactly when we want to exit and how long we want to hold a business for, you know, one of our brands recently raised some money and we were given the opportunity to sell some of our interests as part of that if we wanted to, and we chose not to, we declined. We could have, we chose to stay in. And so I think, you know, we'll ultimately determine as professional investors when we think it's time for us to exit our investment. But I generally believe the ultimate exit, if you want to call it that for a brand or a founder, often dictated by the market.
0: And I think the only thing I would add is we always encourage our founders to really start with the end in mind and to position their business for success. And if that means an exit, then what are the steps that you could be taking now to position yourselves best for the exit? And more importantly, what mistakes do you want to avoid that could potentially close some doors for you down the road? So we will be that sounding board for them helping them navigate those decisions because we've been there. We've taken brands through to exit and Rich has a ton of experience doing that, which is a a unique aspect for us as well.
1: Not many investors who play at the stage we're playing now in the space that we're playing in have real relevant experience actually exiting investments to corporate buyers or other larger private equity firms that we have in the past. So that unique skill set that we bring to the table is quite differentiated and we think can become a real positive for founders over time.
3: Yeah, we absolutely agree. And we've really enjoyed understanding not just the business of what you're doing, but who you are and what you are after. So really appreciate the time. If people wanted to get a hold of either of you or look more into true beauty, how would you recommend they get a hold of you?
0: I would say they reach out to us on our website. You can email us directly there. We're also very active on our social media channels. So you can find us on Instagram. You can find us on TikTok, find us on LinkedIn. We answer pretty much everything that we get. So please don't hesitate to reach out in any of those ways.
2: Well, thank you so much for sharing all your information today. We do look forward to having you back. And we would encourage people to go to the True Beauty Venture website because on that website, there's a lot of really good information, read the blogs, follow you, and so forth, because it's a great way to stay connected to the industry. Thank you so much, Christina and Rich, and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Beauty Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2021. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening.